This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. As part of a partnership with the Royal Collection Trust, the Poetry Society commissions new poems to accompany exhibitions at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace. The latest commission in the series is with T.S. Eliot prize-winning poet Jen Hadfield, who writes against the background of two exhibitions, Scottish Artists, 1750-1900, to and Maria Merian's Butterflies. We're recording this on 26th of May 2016, just before Jen premieres her new poem at the gallery. Jen's flown to London from her home in Shetland to take part in the event, and we're just taking a moment to record the poem and chat with her about it. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. We had two exhibitions. You could have chosen to write about the ecosystems of Shetland, as you often do, but you were drawn instead to Maria Merian's Butterflies. It is funny uh, where poems come from, and I, I tend to find that the more I intend to write a poem, um, the less well the poem works. So I'm pleased that this one um, hijacked me in a way. But the moment I saw the, the images of the butterflies online, I knew that that was the exhibition I needed to write about. The idea of butterflies, writing a poem about butterflies, suggests something maybe a little twee. <laughs> but that's not Maria Merian's approach, is it? Who was she? I think what caught my eye about um, Maria first of all was that she was a woman artist who in 1799 took a journey to Suriname with her daughter to collect and breed and paint butterflies in their native habitat. Um, So not just painting but breeding butterflies? Yes, she collected them. She went on these collecting trips. She, She hired people to go with her into the forest and collect bugs and she got some nasty bites while she did it. Um, She brought them back to the house that she was staying in and she collected chrysalises and caterpillars and watched them develop and hatch and drew them at all stages in their life cycle. So each of her images shows whichever butterfly is a a caterpillar and as a chrysalis and as as a fully grown butterfly and what it feeds off as well. And I really liked that wholeness of the life cycle that she was sewing and showing and so did her audience at the time. They went wild for her. She was she was a really big deal. So going wild for the wild. <laughs> That's right. And you like wildness, don't you? You like a bit of a bit of wilderness. I feel very at home there, and it's and it's very important to me. Um, Shetland's an interesting place because it's a really interesting clash of industry and culture and wildness all mixed in together. And people often don't expect the place to be so complex, I think. But from my point of view, it's really important to be able to leave my house, um, hop over the back wall and be on a cliff and nose down in the sphagnum in a matter of five minutes. So, Because like Maria, because you are also an artist as well as a, as a poet, and you also are a naturalist. I suppose I've always wanted to be a naturalist, but I didn't do very well with sciences at school. And I think if I'd done better in biology, I might have gone a completely different route. But Shetland being as Shetland is, you you find that your career takes uh, unpredictable paths. And I found myself working in a marine sciences lab, um, working with benthic samples, seabed samples from underneath salmon farms, identifying the species 
that live in the seabed. So I'm really happy about that. I never saw that coming. <laughs> so what colours that sludge? <laughs> <laughs> well, the sludge is sort of a mixture of a natural gravel colour and, and it's full of, um, it's kind of a rose-tinted world. We use rose Bengal to, to tint everything that was alive so we can see it and then dissect it and identify it. So it's an amazing magenta hue over everything. Maria Merriam's pictures also very bright colours mm-hmm. and you could have chosen something very glamorous but instead your eye landed on one of the uglier bugs in this particular ball. Oh no he's beautiful he is a little bit freaky looking right enough he really stood out I I don't know whether I should try and describe that image or not really but the the lanternfly is, is also known as the peanut headed bug and his head is peanut shaped the lanternflies are a big family in their own right with a lot of different species within them. And the particular one that Maria drew um, looks like it's heavily camouflaged. So it's it's got lots of bewildering details, I think, designed to confuse predators. So it's got eye spots that look like eyes. And along the edge of its jaw, it's got what looks like terrifying teeth, um, but they're just pigmented. And, and this weird peanut-shaped head is... It's very un-butterfly-like, isn't it? It's also very unbalanced. There's no graceful symmetry of it. Mm -hmm. It's very front-loaded. That's right. Front-loaded is a good way of putting it. And I've I've looked at a lot of YouTube videos. People who've just found one in the forest in South America and filmed it, they're obviously a bit of a favourite there, I think. And I really liked their gait. They've got a really slow, ponderous way of, of moving around. And I suppose the character of the lanternfly in the poem that I wrote really emerged out of that movement as much as anything else. So maybe now's the time to hear, for the first time, your poem about the lanternfly. The lanternfly. Waylaid by a scent of pomegranate, death, the peanut-headed bug is lost in a bowl of care-honed camellias clipped at the bud. Wearing false teeth, the like of which she'd seen in Mexico. It struggles from the leaves' hall of mirrors, broken wing veins parting from broken leaf veins. Like bruised desert grasses, the residents respire a maze of intoxicant phenols. The indecisive lanternfly tacks between perms and petunias. Meanwhile, Reclined on her elbow like a starlet, shedding a sparkling pollen, her skin with a sheen of microscopic feathers, her voice uncluttered, deep. Grandmere wants to know why she doesn't die, eager to do the damn thing right. As the blundering bug alights, should she pour her life into its eyes or its eye spots? What happens if the lanternfly is too late? Nodding its head like a crocodile, hauling the stained glass panes of its wings, she subliming into light. I know quite often with your poems, you do like to play with form, actually. I was just thinking about Mm. um, your last book, Business, and there were a lot of poems there where the form Mm. of the poem reflected the creature or whatever that was being written about so the listener won't know that this poem is a long thin poem (laughs) and it's very elegant long thin poem for a rather 
peanut-headed bug. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. I have started writing a lot of these long, thin poems. There's a few in Bissus as well, and I don't know why they keep falling into that, but there is something I'm deliberately playing with, which is a game of line endings, really. I like the poem to be a little bit of a maze and to to stretch rhythms across the line break, I suppose. And also, I think, in this particular example, what's important for me is that the lanternfly is lost. It's trying to find its way to an old lady, my grandmother. And they're in the same place, but they can't find each other because the lanternfly is so heavily camouflaged um, and she's not sure of the protocols. So I wanted the form to bring across some of that lostness. I wanted it to be... Uh, you know, I, w- I wanted natural breaks in the poem to fall in the middle of lines sometimes. And, you know, just, just to make it a little bit bewildering, I suppose, within the form. And you mentioned your grandmother there, Grandmère, who comes mm. up in, in the poem. And I think you began working on this poem while you were spending time with your grandmother in Canada. Mm-hmm. So Grandmère is 109. She's 109 this month. And she's just made a move into a care home at the age of 108. Um, and actually, when I started writing um, from this exhibition, I was I was writing a different poem about her sitting on her couch and basking in the sun. I, I thought she was having a stroke, actually, because she was so tensed up in the sun. <laughs> but she was she was just basking. She loves the heat. And she looked like she was hatching out of a chrysalis. And I thought, this is the poem that I'm going to write for this exhibition. And I was just hijacked by the lanternfly, really, because I suppose the conversation that's most pertinent that Grandmère and I have so often is that she's not particularly in pain, she's quite healthy, but but she's quite tired and she's ready to die. And she's been saying that for years. And the more we speak about it, the more I wonder how, how people die when they're very old and what triggers it. And she would like to know that as well. And the more we think about it, the more we think it must be a terrible mistake. Um, all this sounds very cold, but it, but it's not, actually. It's just her wishes. So this idea that death is a lanternfly that can't find the person that it's meant to be ministering to because she's so young-looking. She's got such a tremendous vibrancy, and she she looks like an 80-year-old, and she's got this tremendous light emanating from her. Um, she really draws people to her, and, and I feel like that might be the problem. <laughs> so I'm really just playing with that situation in her life in this poem, I think, trying to get my head around it. And... But it was lovely that you, you managed to bring in the humour in there. I love the false teeth in the, mm. <laughs> in the poem and the care home camellias. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a really strange environment. It's just a really strange thing that our, our elder people have to do, I think. We were saying about earlier about how um, you're quite often drawn to write about maybe the things that are quite often overlooked, the less mm. showy things, the mm-hmm. s- either the less showy or the smaller or the beiger or the mm-hmm. molluskier <laughs> kinds of things. And uh, you've obviously done it in this poem, but I love in your work that that sense that you convey of just that joy and wonder in the natural world in things that other people would not see as wonderful mm, I think there must be something wrong with my lenses <laughs> I, th- I don't know I think my feeling 
I suppose Shetland is my model for this in a way because people think of it as a small and finite place and I think of it as a relatively small, very deep place. And I suppose that beigeness that you speak about or that overlooked quality, a lot of people come to Shetland and they see a treeless place um, and they find it quite bleak and barren, which is not a way that I've ever seen it actually because there's such a richness when you look closely and when you're receptive, I suppose that's the other thing. Um, the bog plants in Shetland are, are tiny just because they're grazed by sheep and assailed by weather, but they're so complex and spectacular. You just need to turn your binoculars back to front and magnify them, and there's this kind of jewel-lined sparkling world down there. And you named your last book after a little ruffle in a mussel, mm-hmm. Bissus, and that book contains... Lots of poems about small things, like mm. lichen. And I think you were going to read us another, another poem. Mm-hmm. I'll do lichen, I think. Lichen. Who listens like lichen listens? Assiduous millions of black and golden ears. You hear... And remember, but I'm speaking to the lichen. The little ears prunk, scorch and blacken. The little golden mouths gape. Lovely to have that image of little ears listening um, as we finish a podcast. So... Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you to all the lichen out there listening. And thanks, Jen, for sharing your view on the lanternfly, the art of looking closely, and now also hopefully the art of listening closely too. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.